kind of equated to jumping out of airplanes in the army. You're not a little bit nervous going out the door. There's something wrong with you. But when you open that hatch, uh, the hatch is uh, facing the earth always. It's on the bottom side of the space station. And so when you open the hatch and you go out, you know, generally you're going to go out head first. Sometimes you come out feet first, but regardless, you're going to end up in a heads up attitude where your feet are towards the earth and your head's kind of towards the hatch. And they give you about five to 10 minutes if you need it or if you want it to just hang out and chill and try to figure out how little it takes to move around because on your first one, you you're going to death grip everything generally because you're so jacked up and you just don't know how little it takes to move around outside in a big space. Welcome back team for another week of just really titillating conversation between Alex, myself, and this week, an astronaut, Alex. Yeah, this one's been in the works for a while. Pretty exciting stuff. It's out of this world. It is out of this world. Sorry. Our guest on this one is Colonel Retired Shane Kimbrough. He is a 1989 West Point graduate where he was captain of the baseball team. He commissioned as an aviation officer and flew Apache attack helicopters, including in Desert Storm. He got his master's of science degree at the Georgia Institute of Technology in 1998 and headed back to West Point to teach in the math department. And if I'm doing the math right on the timeline here, it would have been while he was teaching at West Point that he got selected by NASA to be an astronaut because he entered that program in 2004. Which, by the way, is really hard to get selected to be an astronaut. Just a little bit. Yeah, slightly selective. After training with NASA, he completed his first space flight on STS-126, which was one of the last shuttle missions where they were building the International Space Station. He spent almost 16 days on the mission to expand the crew living quarters to accommodate a six-member crew on the ISS, including performing two spacewalks. On his second space flight, he launched to the ISS on the Russian Soyuz MS-2 spacecraft from the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. This mission lasted 173 days as part of Expeditions 49 and 50, where he performed four spacewalks and numerous science and maintenance activities. He most recently served as the commander of the NASA slash SpaceX Crew-2 Dragon spacecraft, which launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Once on the ISS, he served as flight engineer for Expedition 65 and 66. He performed three spacewalks during the 199-day mission for a total of 388 days in space. And I just want to point out that Alex and I are, are very, very professional when it comes to interviewing our guests, bringing them on the episode. However, I think the casual listener will very quickly realize that a massive amount of just pure boyhood curiosity made its way into some of our questions. Uh, we we laid out a very constructive plan uh, and, and we did, you know, dive into a lot of interesting conversations, but we were also curious, like, what does the International Space Station smell like? What is it like to float around in space? So there's a lot of that peppered in here, but I mean, how often do you get to interview a real life astronaut? So Definitely a unique experience. Definitely one of those really cool kind of check yourself moments uh, when it comes to starting a podcast. And I will also point out that this has become part one of a four-part series of episodes that we've sort of dubbed the the NASA series. So you'll hear today from, from Shane, and then we'll have two episodes with the human performance team that supports these NASA missions and a final episode with the research side of the house in terms of future developments around human physiology, I suppose, in space. And it's it's worth explaining how it turned into a series too, because we approached Shane in the first place because he's uniquely interested in human performance and fitness kind of things, even for an astronaut. And over the course of the conversation with him, he kind of made it clear that the ACERS, the Astronaut Strength Conditioning and Rehab Team, were an invaluable part of his preparation for spaceflight, maintaining and even improving his fitness during spaceflight, and his ability to like rehab and continue the mission after those flights. And so because of his endorsement of that team and his excitement about the topic and things like that, this kind of grew into something a little bigger where we're going to talk to that team as well, hear their experiences from being the strength and conditioning and rehab professionals and then dive into the research side of it a little bit as well. So a pretty cool series of episodes here. Enjoy. 
the argument that Alex and I were having before you came on, and you may have heard the tail end of it, was one of the things I wanted to ask was if it's if it's even possible to come back to Earth stronger than when you left. And originally, Alex just dismissed it off the cuff, and then he thought about it, and he's like, "Well, hold on, maybe, maybe there is a way." So my my case was, well, I know <laughs> I'm not certainly an expert on like space flight, human performance stuff by any means, but I've nerded out enough to read a little bit, and I know about some of the, and this is what I'm going to ask you about up front, I guess, but the consequences on bone density, the consequences on muscle mass, even on like vision and blood flow throughout your body and things like that. So I guess Drew's question is, is it possible to come back from space stronger than you left? And the follow on is, can you just kind of talk about like the consequences of your body on spending extended time in space? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I generally think I've come back stronger, both of my long duration missions. Yes. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you're working out for two hours a day, you know, pretty much every day, right. For six plus months. So even even on Earth, we don't get that luxury, right? And so if you did, if you worked out two hours a day on Earth for six months straight, you would be stronger at the end, right? Now, your coordination and your stability is not great when you get back. Um, but in general, I think I was stronger. And we do like a, you know, it's it's not a physical fitness test like the military would do, but it's now NASA's version. And you do that a few days after you get back. And generally, I've been, you know, more reps, more weight than I did prior to leaving. And I, and I work out quite a bit. So, you know, if you don't work out, it kind of changes that dynamic, but I'm one that likes to work out on, on earth and in space. So just to be, just to be clear, Alex was wrong. <laughs> I was right. And just as a caveat, I can't think of too many people that can say that they are stronger on earth than they are in space. That's a pretty cool <laughs> statement to be able to make. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm curious because and we mentioned this in the email conversation before we got here, but I had a, a great conversation with Judy from the human performance team at Johnson. And like a bunch of questions came from that one being, and I'm, I'm like skipping around on some stuff here. We'll have to try and get some sort of narrative flow eventually, but the correct me if I'm wrong, the spacesuit is like 280 or 300 pounds, which doesn't matter a whole lot in zero gravity. I don't think it but, matters at all in zero gravity, but like you have to, you're like in that when you arrive back at earth and like, like what is, how do you train for something like that? Like what is, can you even stand up when you get back? Like I'm so, I'm curious about yeah, that. So, let me, uh, so just to clear it up, that's the spacesuit that weighs that much is the one that we do spacewalks in. Okay. Those stay on orbit. So those aren't the ones we launch and land in. Um, the ones we launch and land in are varying weights, but I don't even know what the like the SpaceX suit I, I launched and landed in recently was probably 30 pounds or something. So not not heavy um, at all. Um, but yeah, if you came back in a 280 pound suit, <laughs> you would be in, you'd be struggling to stand up for sure. Wait, but aren't aren't the official NASA pictures in the spacewalking suit? Correct. On Earth, so I would presume that you do have to, in some sense, navigate with that thing, or do you just? Is it just like the the suit up, like in high school prom picture, yeah. where you just have the? <laughs> yeah, great question and great observation, actually. So that that photo shoot that we do to get the pictures in those are it's a pretty grueling, thirty <laughs> to forty five minutes, uh, and there's actually people underneath you holding holding the weight of the pack up, helping. No it's hard it's freezing in that room because i mean within a few minutes you'd just be sweating because you're working just trying to maintain stability in that you know several hundred pound suit so yeah that's pretty crazy you picked up on that i you know what that was that was definitely not a direction we were thinking of going in but now that i think i, I just picture you guys every picture i see now of an astronaut in that suit i'm picturing three guys underneath them holding up yeah <laughs> it's awesome and we're grimacing and we'll mix in a smile every now and then that they get the picture of i think you guys oh, are so cool. reenacting the scene from Men of Honor, I think is the movie, right? We have to like walk in the dive suit. That's yeah. fantastic. Let's so, go back to the beginning here. I'm going to cut Alex off because I know <laughs> that a question people are going to have anytime you talk to somebody who's been to space, there's always the obvious question of what is the process of becoming an astronaut? And I know you were in the military. So what does that look like to become, or I guess I should say to go from being in the military to sitting on a rocket as it's about to launch into space? Yeah, there's um, several avenues to become an astronaut. Military is one route. And as most people think, most people still think all the astronauts are military, but that's a thing of the past. That's, you know, really back in the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo days, that was true. But once the space shuttle days started, then, you know, scientists and engineers and researchers and 
payload specialists that started adding to the list. And currently there's teachers, doctors, and all those others mentioned above. And so my route was through the military. Um, um, back in those days, in the space shuttle days, about every other year, there was a selection cycle. And uh, if you were in the military, the, the, in my case, the Army would send out an official message. Hey, if you want to apply for the astronaut program, here's what you got to do. And, uh, and so you know, that's how I, I personally did it. Other people from the civilian sector, um, a NASA-wide announcement would go out and they would apply through that process. Um, and then, you know, I applied and I applied again and I applied again and I applied again. <laughs> so I think I wore them down finally after the fourth or fifth time. And I, I got lucky enough to get an interview and then get selected shortly after that. So what, like, before we continue into some of the, like, the physiology and fitness questions, like, once you got selected, what does it take through that process? Because I know, like, looking at your bio, you weren't, like, an astronaut instantly once you were with NASA. There are other jobs you did within NASA and things like that. What's the process of making it all the way to, like, the guy in the suit situation? Yeah, so once you get selected um, as an astronaut, you come in as a class. Uh, our class had 11. You know, they're generally from 8 to 12-ish or so, kind of that you know, average of about 10 these days anyway. And so you start, you come in and you're called astronaut candidates. Um, you're called ask cans. So um, just to <laughs> make sure you're, 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 you know, you keep your humility while you're here. And you go about two years as an astronaut candidate. And through those two years, depending on like, in my case, when I came in in the space shuttle days, we're learning about space shuttle systems and orbital mechanics, and you're getting in the simulator and you're flying T-38s and you're going to survival school and you're doing all these things that as a class and as you know, smaller groups within your class potentially, um, but you're really bonding as a class. You're learning obviously tons of stuff. You're taking exams. You're every time you take an exam, you know, you're getting rank ordered in our case, one to 11. And so, and at the end of those two years, they stack you up and pretty much the folks at the top will, will generally fly first. Um, and they kind of go down from there. That doesn't always happen, but that's kind of the, the theory anyway. And so those two years are, are pretty grueling. Um, and so once you get through that, you'll have a big ceremony where you're, you know, at that point, they, they call you an astronaut, not an astronaut candidate, even though you hadn't been to space, but you're able to, to be assigned to a space flight. Um, and so that's a big day. But then, honestly, it takes a couple more years, four more years, six more years sometimes that you, before you would ever be in a vehicle launching after that date. So it's it's a process. Um you can't just get there and go fly in space. Um, to be a professional NASA astronaut, I should say, of course, um, folks are doing that these days where they're not training very much and get a chance to get space. But uh, <laughs> to be a NASA astronaut, <laughs> that's the process. So for for the physical preparation for it, and I have like, lots of questions in this area, but what did your physical training protocol look like as you got ready for that? And Within that, like, was that a protocol that was given to you by NASA? Are there like specific parameters you need to achieve or things they're looking for? Or how much of it was kind of driven by you? Yeah, honestly, it's really self-motivated, I would say. You know, some people just working out wasn't their thing, right? But, you know, they, I wouldn't say got talked into it, but they saw the benefit of doing it. Um, as you got ready for a space flight, especially if you're going to be a spacewalker, that's, that's, I would say, the most physical thing that we do in space. And so we have incredible trainers called ACERS, Astronaut Strength, Conditioning, and Rehabilitation uh, Specialist and, and coaches that we have that work individually with us as you're getting ready for a flight. Once you get assigned to a mission, then you have a personal, one of those personal ACERS assigned to you that will get you trained on, on all the equipment that you're going to use in space, for one, um, but also, you know, just help your physical fitness, you know, improve as you're getting closer to launch. Uh, if, you know, for someone like myself, that's what I wanted to do. Some people maybe don't care that much about it, but I did. And, and so we worked real hard um, and just, you know, improved my flexibility, improved my, you know, stamina, improved my, my strength and all those things kind of combined as you're getting ready to go fly in space. How, I mean, I, you mentioned the ACERs and I can imagine that that would be a very different environment than I think what most people who listen to this deal with in the sense that, you know, you might have one coach for 500 people. And and in your case, it's, it's a one-to-one. -one. So I'm curious, what does the, maybe not into the X's and O's of what the training looks like, but in terms of dialing in like your individual physiology and prepping for being in space, I mean, I can only imagine that's a pretty technical process. Like what, what did that look like from 
you know, getting ready to launch? Yeah, um, I kind of mentioned before, but you're going to have, you know, I forget the number, say about 16 training sessions on the on the workout equipment that you're going to have in space, like the machine called A-RED. Um, and that's that's really important. And it's you can't simulate it. It's not the same. It's it's the same piece of machinery, but it just doesn't work the same in gravity, right? <laughs> it gets you used to kind of setting it up, doing a few exercises, tearing it down, and just kind of getting you in that good habit. You can get a good workout on it if you want. I, you know, the way my Acer and I kind of did it was we just kind of went through the setup. I do. He showed me, you know, exposed me to all the different exercises and a few extra ones, kind of that were were kind of on the normal protocol. And then we would make sure we knew how to tear it down. And and then I'd go work out in the gym for an hour. So that was that was our technique. Some people actually get a good workout on that machine. I prefer to just do you know free weights and normal weights here on the ground, but but make sure I understood. And I really honestly didn't. The first time, you know, I didn't, even though I went through all those motions, I didn't put it all together until you get into space and, and see how that machine actually moves and functions. And then you're like, then the light bulb came on. I was like, ah, <laughs> now I get it. So, but really incredible machinery that we have. And those, you know, the Acers, um, they don't just train us pre-flight. They train us during our flight as well. And so every week um, we're generally hearing from them getting a chance to talk to them about every once every month, we'll have a video session. So they're going to, we're going to video ourselves working out and they're going to be watching live from mission control and be, you know, be able to kind of give us feedback and help us with our form and technique and things that, you know, we can't see sometimes when we're, when you're the operator. So that's a really nice touch point, I think. And they can, you know, you'll work as, as the, the mission goes on, they'll increase your, your protocols and, and your stamina on the cardio side and things like that. So you work together um, to make sure you're getting to be the, the fit, as, fit as you can be. And so I think one of you guys alluded to it earlier, um, there's problems in space with bone density loss and muscle atrophy. And these workout programs, about two hours a day is what we figured out. Um, really, can can you can come back with zero or minimal bone loss and bone density loss. That's pretty incredible. So that kind of leads into another question I have which is that, you know, across the, I guess now decades of, of space flight, how dramatic of a change is that? I mean, where the, where like Buzz Aldrin and those guys, I can't imagine they were lifting weights in space the same way that you guys are now. So what does that evolution look like? Yeah. It's, you know, think of this for me personally, I've, I've been on the good end of that, right? <laughs> early on the early expeditions, even to the space station, we didn't truly understand that. Until we started doing long duration flights, because the short flights, you know, most space shuttle missions were generally about two weeks long, and you could go two weeks without doing much, and you you know, come back with with minimal effects. But uh, once we started doing long duration missions, you know, three, four, five, six, seven months, um, sometimes a year, even that some of my colleagues are doing now, um, if you don't work out in a couple hours a day and you're not eating the right you know right food for one and the right calorie amount every day, you're going to come back with some bone deterioration. So you, you mentioned that the most physically demanding thing you do in space are the spacewalks themselves. And correct me if I'm wrong here, your, your NASA official bio says nine spacewalks for 59 total hours, extra vehicular, right? Correct. Just because I have like no understanding what that consists of other than like doing the quick math that says you're out there for six straight hours. What is, what does that look like in terms of like physical demands, but also just cognitive demands of being able to deal with that environment for six hours? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's, it is six to seven, you know, generally hours outside at a time, but it's a much longer than that in the suit. Uh, and you mentioned the suit doesn't really weigh anything in space, but it, it is a mass still of say 300 pounds. Right. And so the way we start the process, it's a long day. Every spacewalk day is a really long, you get up early. Um, yeah, it's a team effort, right? You, two people are going outside. The other two people generally are getting you suited up and getting you fed and making sure your all your equipment's ready to go. And, and so that's a huge process. And so you're getting in the suit about three to three and a half hours before you go outside the hatch. All right. So that's another several hours that you're suited up. And, you know, about an hour into that three and a half hours, your helmet comes on. And at that point, you can't touch your face for the next Oh nine or 10 hours. I mean, if you think about it, maybe 11, if, if it takes a while coming back in. Right. So that freaks a lot of people out. I'm getting like anxious thinking about it. I just want to mention it because, you know, it's part of the mental, mental game that you got to play. And if you have an itch or scratch or you start sweating, you know, there's not much you can do about it. So that's just a, 
kind of the mental aspect of it. And for me, those those three or so hours of being suited and not going out the door were were tough for me. Like, cause I was so jacked up and ready to go and and we'd prepped and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed again. And we were ready to go, but the whole process and part of it is you're trying to get all the nitrogen out of your body. And so we're, we're pre-breathing um, for several of those hours, pure oxygen and just getting any nitrogen we can. Cause if you don't, you can have potentially the bends like you do as scuba divers would have as well. And so we're, we're preventing that by doing these pre-breathes in the suit. Um, and so even before you get the suit, you pre-breathe for an hour on just a mask, a pure O2 mask. And so that's not comfortable either, but just all part of the process and uh, you get to do all that and then eventually go outside. And so, but once, you know, once that hatch opens and the spacewalk starts, boy, it's a mental, real mental challenge. I mean, it's, you're focusing so intently on everything you touch, everything you get, every tool you get, make sure there's a tether on it, every handrail you grab, make sure it's secure um, so that you don't maybe go floating off. And, um, and so I don't know, what you guys do that's that requires intense focus uh, but if you just imagine that intense focus for six to seven hours it's a mental strain all right and there's it's physically challenging because that 300 pound spacesuit is a mass that you're maneuvering around and it's pressurized meaning that you're blown up um, it's not just a suit that you're in but it's actually blown up meaning that it gets really really stiff and so you're fighting the pressure of that spacesuit anytime you move your hands um, it's kind of like if you resist with your hands and you do that for seven hours, that's kind of what spacewalking is like, um, because you're you're doing everything with your hands. We call it spacewalking, but you really don't do anything with your feet, right? <laughs> you move around with your hands. That's how you get around. You get tools. You put in new equipment. You pull out old equipment. You, you know, everything you're doing out there is with your hands. And so, you know, the gloves are very good, very capable, but they're still like, you know, changing the oil on your car and like ski mittens, right? So it's not, the dexterity is not perfect. And so you're kind of fighting that all day as well um, when you're outside and, and the temperature swings. So we haven't really talked about that, but that can, you know, that can weigh on your body and your mental side as well. And so um, don't know if you guys know, but the speeds we're going, we go around the earth every 90 minutes. And so as, as you guys know, half is half the earth's light, half is dark. And so, so every 45 minutes, we're seeing a sunrise or a sunset when you're outside. Um, and you're not just seeing it, you're experiencing, experiencing it. And meaning that there's a big temperature swing. Um, a lot of people say, "Hey, is it hot or cold in space?" I'm like, "Yes, right." So <laughs> when the when the sun's out, it's about 200 degrees C, um, almost 400 degrees Fahrenheit. So super hot. So 45 minutes of that, and then as soon as the sun goes away, you're 45 minutes of minus 200. All right. So 400 degree temperature swing every 45 minutes is um, your, your suit protects you from that. Thank goodness, but you definitely know it's getting hotter or colder. Uh, and depending on how much work you're doing, you'll you'll either be perspiring or not. So all that to say, it's a definitely a physical challenge out there. Um, but I would say personally, it's more mental um, and that you got to keep that focus. And if you're the lead spacewalker, like I had the privilege of doing several times, you know, you're really looking out for your, your, your crewmates and making sure, especially if they're a rookie, they're outside for the first time, you're really making sure they're doing OK and you're monitoring their pace. Um, and just keeping everybody kind of everything kind of stable because you only have limited amount of supplies in your backpack, you know, your oxygen and carbon dioxide removal and all that stuff. Those are consumables. And uh, you, you got to kind of monitor those because if you go outside and you're all jacked up for two or three hours straight, you're going to be out of, out, of, out of oxygen pretty quickly. So we got to just tone everybody down a bit um, as a spacewalker. And that's part of it. Just looking out for your buddy, where you're, whether you're the lead or not, you're always looking out for your partner making sure they're in good shape before you kind of move off to do something else. I'm going to be honest. Everything you just said sounds miserable. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, there's a big payoff. I mean, to, for one, whatever you're going to do outside is going to help the life of the space station. Right. So you're, you're a part of something so much bigger than yourself, which is to me very rewarding. I think it is for most people. And uh, every now and then, if you get lucky, you'll actually get to just hang out for a minute and look at our beautiful planet and uh, see how incredible that view is while you're going 17,500 miles an hour. And so um, it is a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. I don't, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, hopefully you're not having any fun out there because it's so serious. The risk is very high. The, you know, it's just dangerous out there I'm in the vacuum of space. And so the error tolerance is pretty small and you want to make sure you're doing the right thing 
and you, you, you'll probably make a few mistakes while you're out there and you got to mentally get over that and move on. And, and you know, there's so many people are counting on you to do whatever you're doing, whether you're installing a new solar array in, in our case in this last flight, or, you know, you know, take out an old piece of equipment and put a new one in. Everybody on the ground that has trained you, you know, hundreds of people that have helped you get suited up and trained you in the classroom and in the pool, they're all counting on you to do, to do the right thing, right? So there's some pressure there and you just got to learn how to deal with that um, and accomplish the mission. So, I mean, not to go in a different direction from, I think, the trajectory that we're on, but I'm curious, what... That first spacewalk, I mean, I could be wrong here. Like, you know, the door opens maybe metaphorically, but like, how does that feel as a human to just open that and be like, okay, I'm going to do this thing now. I mean, you've had plenty of hours by this point, but the first time, like, how is that? I would say the first is not too different than any other one. I did. <laughs> it's like, I kind of equated to jumping out of airplanes in the army. Mm -hmm. You don't, if you're not a little bit nervous going out the door, there's something wrong with you. But when you open that hatch, I mean, to your point, uh, the hatch is uh, facing the Earth always. It's on the bottom side of the space station. And so when you open the hatch and you go out, you know, generally you're going to go out head first. Sometimes you come out feet first. But regardless, you're going to end up in a heads up attitude where your feet are towards the towards the Earth and your head's kind of towards the hatch. And they give you about five to ten minutes if you need it or if you want it to just hang out and <laughs> chill and try to figure out how little it takes to move around because on your first one, you, you know, you're going to death grip everything generally because you're so jacked up and you just don't know how little it takes to move around outside in a big spacesuit. And that takes about an hour, honestly, for most people to, to settle down and realize, all right, I got to, I got to turn my, my pace down here. I got to just grab, you know, you can just fingertip grab and move yourself around instead of death grip and everything. And those kind of things are wild. A lot of my um, colleagues have told me and, and had this sensation once they come out of the hatch, they're falling to earth, right? Because that's a pretty natural sensation, I think, if you, yeah. if you come out of something like that. And that's a bad feeling for people. And they have to just mentally grind and get through that. But <laughs> luckily, I did not have that sensation. But I was I was definitely prepared for it. So did my colleagues tell me to, to look out for it. And everybody tells you, hey, if you're lucky, you'll get to go outside at night for your first one. Because that way you can't really see as much and there aren't, you know, as many visual like overload, you mm. know, sensory overload going out the door. And um, of course, you know, as, as luck would have it, I, I went out in the daytime. And so it's just like, wow, there's so much to look at. And and you just got to immediately get focused on what you're doing, that next handrail you're going to grab, the tether you're going to hook up to make sure you don't go floating away. All those things that you're trained, your training just really kicks in, at least it did for me uh, and the ones that, that I've done. Uh, but that stuff never changed. Like, I always say kind of the first five or 10 minutes of that spacewalk are really, really critical to how the rest of the day is going to go. And if you you can get that right and you can just rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it. And, and we did that with, with the people I went outside with um, to make sure everything we did in those first five or 10 minutes went super smoothly. And if that happens, then you're kind of just off on a good path and you can kind of relax a little bit as you get going for the rest of the day. So you mentioned this already, and we've talked a lot about like the physical demands of doing that, but you mentioned that it's probably more mental than it is physical. How in the screening process do they figure out what it takes psychologically and screen for that with candidates? Because you're the number of factors you're thinking about, because there's like performance anxiety stuff, there's isolation related stuff, there's social stuff because you're stuck up there with a small group of people. Just like that's that's a lot of psychological factors to work through. How do they screen? How do they simulate that? How do they screen for that in the process? Yeah, it, it is. And it's evolved that um, to answer your question, the whole process of screening for that has evolved and it changes a little bit almost every time there's a selection. The only one I had the pleasure of really interacting with was the one I was in. Um, and I haven't been on a selection board since I was selected. But uh, when we did it, it was honestly, it was just I don't know, four or five hours of site testing on a computer. And then you met with the psych doc for a couple hours. So, you know, however you answered that question of like, why don't you want to be a librarian? Or, you know, what's your prettiest color flower that you like? You know, those kind of things are <laughs> like, what are they getting at here? Right. They kind of analyze all that and and kind of somehow put it into a formula. And that's how they ended up um, helping at least pick uh, our class of astronauts. Uh, they, they do a lot more now. I think we understand. I was selected in 2004, so that was almost 20 years ago. So I think that whole the whole arena of mental health and and what you guys are talking about has come such a long way in those past 20 years that they're definitely doing more tests and, and putting people in real situations and seeing how they react 
And I don't know the specifics, unfortunately, but they're definitely doing a lot more to, to try to tease out those things of, of, you know, picking somebody that may be claustrophobic or maybe have anxiety and those kind of things in small spaces. I, I imagine we're not supposed to know exactly what they do in terms of the real situations. Cause I think part of it is supposed to be exposure, but yeah, yeah I, just, I just don't know. Thinking about putting a, a helmet on and not being able to touch your face for 10 hours, like makes my nose itch. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, interesting dilemma. Somebody think. should engineer like a prosthetic little like robot nose scratching <laughs> arm. inside. <laughs> yeah, you have a, uh, but the recourse you have, or I found, is you have a Valsalva device in there, meaning that if you had to clear your ears, because a lot of people have trouble clearing their ears as you're pressurizing things, there's these two little things that kind of sit wherever you want them. But if you have an itch, you can kind of use that to kind of scratch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it just needs to be on the, make sure it's on the correct side that you have the itch, which you don't have any control over. But uh, once it's in there, it's in there. I want to, I want to take it maybe back to the the fitness space and for folks that have not really read into this or haven't even, I mean, there's, I know there's a lot of pictures. I saw some pictures of you using some of the machines that are, are available, but what do you have access to when you're on the space station in terms of working out, I suppose? Yeah, these days um, it's really an amazing suite, I would say, of, of equipment. There's a workout machine, I'll call it. It's called A-RED, Advanced Resistive Exercise Device. And you can do everything on this one machine that you pretty much you can do in the gym from squats to deadlifts to curls to bench to shoulder press to abs. You know, and the list goes on and on. You get pretty creative with it as well with cables or with a bar. Really, really capable machine. You can get up to about a 600-pound load on that thing. And so none of us could generally can do 600 pounds of anything, but, uh, you know, it's a really capable machine and we're on that for about an hour a day. And then about an hour of cardio, we have two cardio machines that we use. Uh, one is the treadmill T2, we call it, or Cobert it is named after, <laughs> um, is a great, great treadmill. Really. I mean, of course, if you think about a treadmill in space, you've got to do something to hold yourself down. And so we have a harness we, we put on and we attach yourself to, to the treadmill and you can adjust kind of the, the pressure it's putting on your body and holding you down by, by these clips that we have. And uh, you start out with a lot of clips. So it's just nice. You're just trying to figure out how to run. And then as you get better, you'll start taking clips off and it really just compresses you down more. You're trying to use the big pelvic muscles and, and really exercise those and to make sure they stay active and those are firing so that you don't lose bone loss or don't have bone loss in those areas or bone density loss. Um, uh, and, and we're running for 45 to 50 minutes generally on a protocol. And uh, you have different protocols set up by your your coach or your ACER that we had. And generally mine, I had four different ones. Generally, there was a kind of a, call it a sprint where you kind of warmed up for three or four minutes and then you started doing intervals of 200s. And so you did however many 200s, you know, probably about 20 or so um, with, you know, a little rest in between. You're still running, but um, you're not sprinting and that ends up being about 45 minutes. And then the next, next time I would get on there, it would be 400s. All right. So you, and of course the times that you're running and the times that you're resting are, are lengthened a little bit. And then the other protocol I had were 800. So those are, those are always fun. And, uh, and then I had kind of what they called it a Sunday jog. So it's just like a three, <laughs> three to four mile jog kind of steady pace. And so you can kind of you know, generally I kind of went in that order when I'd get on the machine, but every now and then I just felt like sprinting or I felt like just a jog because I wouldn't, you know, something didn't feel right that day or whatever. And so that's a really great machine. And we kind of would alternate that daily with the, with the, uh, call it a stationary bike, but it's the cycle ergometer. It's not stationary at all. None of these machines, by the way, they all are on what we call VISs, um, vibration isolation system. So they're all floating in themselves. Um, just so they were not putting stress into the, the structure of the International Space Station, you know, wow. when you did a heavy rep or you you kind of ran hard and hit something. And so that's an interesting way to ride a bike. I will say it's it's kind of <laughs> like I equate it to being on a unicycle, riding it on a trampoline. It's kind of the feel that you have when you're riding that cycle ergometer. You're upright and your arms are behind you. Like we don't have handlebars in front like you would on a bike in the gym, for instance, or on a real bike. But uh, they're behind us. So you're kind of standing up. And you're riding this thing. And so it's really a balancing, a good core exercise just to get on this thing and, and keep it upright. And you get some really, you know, we have other you know, protocols, whether you want a hill or a sprint and all those kind of things that you have in a normal gym or acers will set those up as well. Uh, but really, I think really amazing machines to keep our cardio up, 
and to keep our strength up while you're on the space station. Just for those listening, I'd, I'd highly recommend if you're like nerding out about this stuff to go look at videos of them using the machines. The vibration isolation systems are pretty cool. Like when they're when they're using the resistance machine, the machine moves in the opposite direction, the same amount they're moving, so it's all stabilized. And the bike is way funkier than you'd think. Um, <laughs> it, it has neither a seat nor normal handlebars because like seats don't work in space. You can't like sit on something, <laughs> so they're just kind of like strapped with their back to something and like you have to do the upward and the downward movement. You can't just like push on the pedals and expect it to go. It's a whole different experience. <laughs> yeah, very true. And the, the Russians have a few more devices on their end. Um, they tried to get, they have kind of their own bike and their own treadmill and um, kind of a bungee system that they do abs with, but uh, they come over to use our, our <laughs> exercise machine, the A-RED. This, this begs the obvious series of questions. Do you guys ever throw down? you know, Russian versus American in space in terms of a liftoff, perhaps a, a runoff or a cycle off who nice. wins. We did not do that. That's a great idea though. But seriously, the biggest competition we had was um, we had our SpaceX crew up there last time when I was up there and we had the, the Russian Soyuz crew. Uh, one of those was an American, but two cosmonauts. And we had, we were up there during the Tokyo Olympics. And so we actually had a space Olympics uh, one day <laughs> and we had some fierce competition, all kinds of activities, as you might imagine. There's some good video out there probably on YouTube about that, but it was a lot of fun competing against them um, all day or for a couple hours one day as we got creative with all these space sports, but that was pretty fun. So we do not currently mops and mows generate any revenue whatsoever. So we don't have a huge budget, but we would love to sponsor an international space station, Russian versus American fitness competition. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we will we'll always. Well, yeah, that, that'd be interesting to see how that would work out. <laughs> I would say it probably had to be vehicle, vehicle by vehicle, kind of like we did it just to keep the peace. But uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. What is the... Uh... I've been getting into the weeds here. What's the uh, what's the music preference for a workout in space? Or are you allowed to listen to music? Oh yeah, kind of ironically, um, you know, all our our cardio workouts I mentioned were about forty five minutes or so. Well, every hour long TV show in the U.S. if you take out the commercials, they're all forty two minutes, right? So generally, we're watching a TV show or a movie while you're while you're doing cardio, um, and then while you're lifting, you're cranking up music or you have your we have earbuds and pods and stuff that you wear up there as well so yeah it just depends on who you are and what you like you can have whatever music you want they'll send it up to you um, same with tv shows or movies um, you just give them your preferences before you go and then when you get up there they're already loaded and ready for you so pretty sweet that is so neat one of the so one of the questions i had leading into this and it's kind of a weird one but it came to mind as i was thinking of the training in the two hours i don't want to sound dumb Obviously, you're going to sweat. How is that handled? Because I can imagine you don't want it just floating around the space station, but you guys are training a considerable amount. Yep. Yeah, you definitely are sweating. Or you, Like I was drenched every time I worked out, put in the work, you're going to be sweating, right? I mean, it's right. generally about 72, 73 degrees on the space station, but when you're working hard, you're going to be sweating and, and you have to manage that. Now, it's generally, it's not going to go like floating off the sweat unless you just happen to like shake your head real hard, then the you know, bead of sweat would go floating off. But you know, I always had a towel or a washcloth nearby. I'd start sweating and just wipe it off. Some people like ran with headbands or something as well. I did not do that, but some people do that just to manage the sweat. Um, but you got to have something there. Otherwise, it's generally kind of, even if you're running and you touch something, then it's just going to flow off your hand to whatever you're touching and that kind of stuff. But you know, you're going to wipe the equipment down after every workout and, um, and of course, clean yourself up as well um, mm -hmm. before you head off to do your, your next activity. I was listening to you earlier today talk about how when you guys pee in space, it gets recycled and becomes drinking water. Part of it does. Is is like your sweaty laundry the same way or is that a whole different process? <laughs> Any condensation or liquid. So yeah, sweat could fall into that category. If it gets liberated, we'll get, you know, kind of sucked up by the machines that we have on the space station and get put into that same system. Um, now our clothes, our laundry, we, we don't have a laundry facility up there. And so you're, you have a certain number of days you're supposed to wear everything. And uh, once that day hits, then you throw it out. It's all trash after that. So workout clothes get pretty nasty by the end of, uh, <laughs> you're supposed to wear them all once a week. You, know, you get one, one pair a week. So by the end of the week, you're, 
you're uh, ready to get rid of those and put some fresh ones on. So you get one pair of clothes a week to work out in for two hours a day and yeah. you can't, you can't wash it. You can't, <laughs> it just hangs out in the space station. Exactly. How does that, what is it, what does it smell like on the international space station? You know, um, the first time I went back in 2008, um, when they opened the hatch to the space station, it, to me, it smelled like a locker room or a gym, <laughs> you know, it just had that smell. And then the last two times I've gone up, the systems have gotten much better and I like noticed no difference. So even though, you know, four or five people on the U.S. side are working out every day and you're you're kind of hanging your stuff up to dry, you know, air dry every day, um, the, the, air, the circulation system and the air conditioning system do a really great job to take out the odors and take out any kind of locker room smell. And so um, they figured that one out. Thank goodness. I love that. In, in one of the articles, it might have been Men's Health that you you were interviewed in, there was discussion about a lot of hip-based movements, deadlifts, squats, things like that, as being really important for, I suppose, the specificity of what it means to be an astronaut. Aside from those two, like what are some of the other big ones that you would consider to be like must-haves for this type of work? You mean like with our normal workout routine on this? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Just to give you an idea, like literally start out every day with squats and deadlifts and you're doing 50 to 75 each. All right. So I mean, you're doing a lot of reps um, and with pretty heavy weights. So, you know, our, you get with your racer. For me, I was doing either four sets of six with two warm up sets. Let's see. Four sets of six was kind of the, the heavy weight. Right. And then, you, you know, if you do like five sets of eight, you'd be a little lighter weight. And then the, you do sets of 12 was another rep repetition that we did um, just lighter weight, but a lot more reps and you kind of rotated through that cycle every, you know, every day you, you did it, but uh, there was some kind of squat. Sometimes it's regular squats. Sometimes it's sumo. Some, 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 uh, sometimes it's single leg squats up there. And so that kind of cycled every third day, you're always doing either a deadlift or a sumo deadlift every day. Heel raises are really big just to keep your heels um, kind of mm -hmm. activated because you're not walking or anything up there. And so just keeping that, you do like four sets of 20 heel raises every pretty much every day, part of your leg stuff before you kind of switched over to upper body. They, I think things like that, as mentioned, those exercises are kind of the big core ones. Um, our acers or my acer would tell you, you know, it's great if you do bench and curls and tries, but that's not really going to help you. <laughs> you know, your overall body, it's not going to help your bone density as much as doing, you know, the squats and the deadlifts and the, and the heel raises. So like this will probably come up in your intro, which we're going to record separately from the episode, but you were an athlete in college. You played baseball. How do you think that background contributed to both your success in getting through astronaut selection, but your ability to handle kind of that routine in space do you think there's a connection there absolutely i mean sports in general is as you guys know i think are just such there's so many life lessons you learn in sports right um for me with baseball the team aspect the discipline aspect the you know you got to rely on your buddy when you make a mistake hopefully your buddy's going to pick you up you know all those kind of things certainly transferred over uh for me knowing the importance of stretching uh, i was a pitcher and just trying to keep your arm healthy and stretching and icing it after you through and, you know, all that kind of rehab stuff um, definitely is what we do at NASA with our bodies. When you get, you know, you go to space and you come back and your, your body is kind of wrecked and it needs a lot of, of TLC to get it back to, to fighting shape, so to speak. And just kind of having that mentality of doing it before, but playing baseball in college was, was certainly natural for me where I actually saw other crewmates of mine who, didn't come from the athletic background. They struggled a little more when they got home because they just didn't want to do it and didn't maybe realize the benefits of, of having that. So I think I was a little bit of a leg up on that one on most of my crewmates. So you mentioned, I mean, you know, stretching and injury prevention type stuff. What does that look like when you're in space? Cause it's one thing for a coach, you know, down here on earth to prescribe you training and manage some of that. But I mean, I'm thinking of aches, pains, niggles, et cetera, that athletes experience while they're training. How do you guys handle that? What does that look like? Yeah, we, you know, I had a couple issues and most people do while you're up there, you're going to have something go. Um, for me, generally it's my back or I'll throw my back out for a day or two and have to work through that. To me, it, it, and 
in space, it kind of went away much quicker. And there's not all the pressure on your joints and things, but still something you had to deal with. And we had some shoulder issues with some of my crewmates that we um, that were a little more serious that we had to work through with with kind of guidance from our acers and also a, a PT on the ground and, a, and another doctor. I'm kind of I was kind of the person guiding this other crewmate through exercises to, to try to rehab them. And and so it's a great team effort um, all around as we're, you know, kind of experiencing these little tweaks and things. And ideally they, they won't affect something big or, Hey, I can't do this thing today because I got hurt. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's the goal. But sometimes it'll maybe affect a spacewalk and you can't actually go out and do a spacewalk and all that planning and prep that the team has done um, has to be put on hold. And, and that happened while we were up there one time. Uh, and it was, you know, it's tough for that crew member to make that call, but it was absolutely the right call, um, but a very challenging one mentally to make. Um, but it was the right thing because they just did not have the strength that was required um, to go outside due to, to an injury they had. So this is a question based on stuff I've heard, but I've been wrong on this episode already, so I don't know. Yeah, you but... can come back stronger from space, Alex, <laughs> obviously. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm... I'm sure there's a whole bunch of like medical screenings and research things that happen immediately after you come back to earth after a space flight. But I also understand there's like a month and a half of kind of reconditioning, like getting used to earth gravity again. And you talked like you can't really train balance and coordination very well where you're in space. What does that reconditioning period look like? Like what was your experience with the getting used to living on earth again, part of training? Yeah, I mean, your body just feels really weird coming back to gravity. It's a strange environment uh, floating around. Microgravity is kind of your new normal. And so just your inner ear trying to figure out, you know, where it is, your sense of balance, and your coordination's a little off. Um, to me, what, even though I, your body just tells you don't go work out, to me, if I could just get to the gym and get a workout in, kind of the, the healing process, so to speak, was on. And the quicker I could do that and get moving, um, the better off I was. And, and as an example, we, Megan, who was our pilot on this last mission, she and I signed up for this test post-flight uh, and you sign up for things and you have no idea how you're going to feel. Sometimes you're just <laughs> like, yeah, I can't do it. Sorry. But we, uh, we signed up for this thing and we were trying to give, you know, the, the mission planners at NASA who were trying to figure out, Hey, if it takes six months to get to Mars, uh, we don't really have an analog for that. So we're just, you know, we're going to bring these people home after a six month or so flight if we can get a few tests in and see what they can actually do and can't do, it'll just give us a better idea to what to expect when somebody goes to Mars, right? So Megan and I raise our hands and, and the test we were going to do was actually get in a, a lunar spacesuit, right? So get in another closed environment, crazy <laughs> thing, and actually do a bunch of physical tasks, like, you know, walking around, first of all, and then they put us in this rock yard where there's, it's a, kind of like a beach with a bunch of boulders in there that you have to walk over, you know, which is take some coordination. And, um, and then they had us kind of pick up sandbags and, you know, carry them 10, 10 meters and drop them off, pick up another one and see how many we could do in like a 10 minute stretch. And, you know, we're just trying honestly not to throw up and because <laughs> again, you don't feel great, but boy, as strenuous as that was for both of us, as soon as we got through that, our bodies kind of just started turning the corner and we just started feeling better. And so that, that motivated me mentally to, to get kind of the next day, get the gym, get going at getting after it. And, and uh, my body started kind of the healing process. I don't know if you guys heard, but uh, I was kind of racing the clock to get home or our mission kept getting delayed and delayed, which is not unusual, but my daughter was getting married and she, and she had a certain date. Now it was getting pretty close that I wasn't going to make it. Uh, but I landed about 10 days before she got married. And so that, that week, that first week home, I was in the gym hitting it hard just so I could, you know, I had some extra motivation to be able to walk her down the aisle and it looked somewhat normal. So, <laughs> um, my acers did a great job getting me ready for that, that task. That's fantastic. And this is, this is less of a question and more of something I had not thought about at all until I had the conversation with Judy about the, the space flight physiology stuff. But this is, this is for the soldiers listening who complain about how like other things get in the way of PT all the time, even though we say it's the most important thing we do every day. That is also the case with astronauts, like both pre-flight, post-flight. There are plenty of things that get prioritized and get in the way of their physical training, even when we're talking about the stakes being like spacewalks and these guys being the focus of that many resources. I was, It's not something I had thought about at all. It kind of yeah. threw me for a loop a little bit thinking about like when it's that critical, there's still a whole bunch of other stuff that'll get, it'll step on PT time. 
Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you just, you know, it's got to be a personal thing, as I found out, not just in the Army, but at NASA. It's got to be personal for you. Otherwise, you'll prioritize something else in front of it, right? Just knowing the benefits of it and um, in the military, the benefits it's going to provide you or your crewmate that you may be having to drag out of a, a vehicle or a helicopter or something, you know, in, in a bad situation. You want to be ready for that. So this is this is more of a military question than a fitness question, but I if I'm not mistaken, you were in command of the space station end of 2016, beginning of 2017. What does command look like in the NASA space station? Like do you do you give orders in that setting? Are there court martials in space if somebody does something wrong? There's no lifting like, competitions. We found that out. Do you have leadership control <laughs> over other countries' astronauts? Like what is I'm just fascinated by what command means on the space yeah, station. Uh, great question. Um, it's, you know, in a way it's not much different than being a commander of a military unit where you, you're ultimately responsible for everybody in your command and anything that's done. Right. So command for me means a lot of different things, but bottom line is taking care of your people, making sure that you have your pulse on what's going on with them, even though it's hard. Um, and it's hard, you know, as an army commander, I went through that and tried to learn, you know, the best I could through that experience. It's hard on the space station as well because you got people in our case from four or five different countries that don't necessarily operate uh, the way that you've operated and they're not military, some of them. And some of them you don't see all day because they're down on the other side of the space station working. And so you've got to make the extra effort. You've got to, you know, take time out of maybe something that you're supposed to be doing to go check on the cosmonauts in my case and just have have tea with them because that's what they like to do every day at a certain time of day. And that's a, a kind of a bonding time that we had. And, and just, um, and really it's, you know, all this stuff, let me take a step back. All this stuff starts in our training as we lead up to a mission, right? And the investment that, that the commander is going to make with that team um, is going to pay huge dividends once you get on the mission. And, uh, and so I was very calculated, I would say, uh, but genuine, you know, as we were training and, and just trying to get people, you know, get to know the person, um, not just the, the astronaut or the cosmonaut, but get to know the person and their families, what makes them tick, um, really investing in them through the training process, having social events and just seeing people outside of work um, really helps me to understand them a little more um, more deeply, obviously. And that just pays huge dividends. We were, uh, we got to the point where we were, you know, exp setting expectations is a big thing for any commander. Communication is as well. We can go on and on, but setting expectations was one thing that really paid off. I just told my crew before we launched, these are the expectations that I expect when we get up there. And boy, that just little did I know how huge that was going to be because if you have an emergency, you have whatever, and those things are going to happen while you're up there. Um, because we had kind of talked to expectations beforehand, everything went super smoothly. Um, so I can't reiterate how important that is as the leader. And sometimes, you know, you don't have to do everything as the leader. That's another thing that I learned in the Army. You have great people around you, so empower them, um, delegate things to them, give them responsibilities so that they can grow. Um, and I got the chance to do that as a, a commander of the space station to, to let other people do spacewalks, let, let other people use the robotic arm to grab a vehicle that's coming up instead of me kind of doing everything. So um, it was really rewarding for me to watch them grow and to build them up as, as people, um, first of all, and as astronauts or cosmonauts after that. That's awesome. I mean, I, it's hard to even imagine the concept of commanding in space. How do geopolitical tensions on Earth affect the environment in, in the space station? I realize that's totally unrelated to where we're going with this, but just out of curiosity, does that, does that play into it at all? Uh, it really depends on the crew, but yeah, great, great question, especially with what's going on currently. Right. So, um, we didn't have anything major like that when I was up there on any of my trips, but you know, we had elections and we had, you know, other things and, and those mm -hmm. kind of topics would generally come up while we were on board. And it just, that was an expectation I also set before we launched with my crew that generally we're not going to talk politics. We're going to keep that off the table and we're just going to, you know, enjoy each other while we're sitting around the dinner table and floating around eating our, our dinners or whatever. But, <laughs> and that, you know, for the most part that, you know, you're going to, somebody will mix it in every now and then, but you kind of just got to redirect and make sure, Hey, remember what we talked about beforehand? That's not helping the crew and, and the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and explain it to them once again, they're like, Oh, leave it on earth guys. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So it's a, it's a, you know, 
I'll tell you, the cosmonauts, you know, and the astronauts were very, very similar people in the way we were trained, the way we were brought up, the way we would do things in space. And so we're generally very compatible. Um, and it's really neat to learn another culture, right? I, I had French, Japanese, and, you know, Russians on my flights. And just awesome to be able to, to live with them and, and share, you know, share that's really your space family and share kind of life with them for six plus months at a time and get to to see how they do things and uh, learn that you know, different languages, of course, but learn different cultures, um, which was really a huge benefit of going to the International Space Station. So this one might be too nerdy. This might be a question for a physiologist working at NASA instead of an astronaut. But one thing that I found fascinating because it is like an answer to problems we have in the army, I think. But NASA has something called the Complement of Integrated Protocols for Human Exploration Research or CIFR, where they've they've basically laid out like the, the whole staff of physiologists, researchers, exercise science, whatever, have like doctors, all of it have gotten together and figured out like these are the next things we need to understand about how space affects humans. And that list is published to kind of drive the research direction for both like on space station research and earth based terrestrial research, I guess, <laughs> to help answer like all the questions that the planners have for lunar missions and Mars missions and all these kinds of things. Um, my question is, do you, do you think there's a world, cause you were an army guy before you were an astronaut. Do you think there's a world where the DOD or the army come up with something more structured like that. Cause like Drew and I talk about this all the time, but we see, we see a lot of human performance research happening. That's not answering the questions practitioners actually have. Mm. It's just research going in whatever direction researchers feel like going. Do you think there's a world where we could kind of learn that lesson from NASA of structuring like, Hey, here are the things we wish we understood better about human performance. Please research these. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, NASA, like the, the group you mentioned, they're doing a great job of just trying to think ahead, right? Trying to you know, moon Mars. It's different up there. It's different than being on the space station. And what's how's the body going to be different? And the physical performance measures are going to be different in factors. So Army, I think, um, you know, it seems like they, at least a part of it is is thought a little bit differently, right? With the ACFT versus the APFT. And um, hey, that's a little more functional from, you know, I'm not sure everybody loves it or not, but it's just <laughs> they're trying to think, hey, what's really things that we're really looking for on the battlefield, right? Which is, you know, I would say the moon and Mars would, would equate to the battlefield in our situation. And so I think that's good. I don't know if they're hitting the mark right or, or we need to adjust or, and do something else. But uh, certainly they could learn from this group, right, to try to try to you know, not just set out goals, but to have the research like you were talking about really line up so that you can actually get there and get some some good results and then have a better fighting force down the road. So this is pivoting away from that kind of back to stuff we were talking about before, but as I understand it, the space station as a project is scheduled to end in 2030. As someone who lived on it, as someone who commanded it, as someone who has spent so much of their life revolved around those missions or how do you those missions yeah how do you feel about that and like what do you think that means for the future of human space exploration um you know i've been around nasa for a couple of decades now right and the priorities change right so it's and it's politically driven generally and so like for example when i got there the space shuttles were kind of towards the end of their life uh, we got a chance to fly on those our class did and then shortly after that, they went away because the priority shifted. The International Space Station was complete at that point from the U.S. perspective. So we didn't need this, you know, this huge, amazing vehicle that, that carried every piece up there pretty much and put the space station together. So the decision was made for that to go away, okay, because we, we wanted to have a new vehicle that was going to go to deep space eventually. And honestly, NASA didn't have the budget to do space shuttle, space station, and a new vehicle. And so if you just look at the money and the politics that kind of drove space shuttles ending at some point, and then the money could then be used to build a future spacecraft, which is Orion now that you guys are probably familiar with. Um, it'll take uh, astronauts to the moon, around the moon here in, in the next year or so, and then put people on the surface uh, of the moon here in the next probably three or four years. So that vehicle is built uh, and we had the money to do it. And, you know, eventually here in the next few years, like you mentioned, space station will probably fade out and be retired. And because that's 
our focus at NASA or the NASA focus will be deep space kind of at that point. So the priorities have shifted and kind of politically things have shifted, would have shifted in the next few years to kind of enable all that to happen. Now, if a, maybe the space station becomes a private entity and other agencies are, are you know, outside of NASA or Roscosmos or the European Space Agency or Japanese Space Agency, somebody else is controlling it on the private side, that may happen, but I think that would be really challenging for a private company to do that, but that's an option. If not, eventually they're gonna have to deorbit the space station and there's already plans made to do that in the South Pacific. And so when that, whenever that day comes, you know, it's to me, it's just kind of a logical stepping stone to continue to move forward, right? We've been on the space station for several decades now and we've learned a lot. There's always more to learn, but at some point you kind of gotta to push the next set of boundaries, the next frontier, which will be deep space for humans. So just to clarify and make sure we paint a clear picture for everybody listening, when you say deorbit over the South Pacific, you <laughs> crash mean we're, it gonna, into the ocean. we're gonna watch the space station like burn through the atmosphere and crash into the ocean. Yep. So a lot of it'll burn up as it comes through the atmosphere. Uh, but there will be big pieces that still make it through and they've already figured out exactly where it's gonna go. That plan's been in place for for many years. Wow. Deorbit. That might be one of my new favorite words. That sounds way better than crash into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little softer. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of working towards a close now and talking about the future of, of, you know, space travel and obviously SpaceX comes to mind, sort of the commercialization of all that. And and having been in the NASA ecosystem and what I can imagine is incredibly structured. I mean, we've talked about the training and the individualization of all of it and everything that goes into, you know, being in space. What do you think that that means for commercializing this type of thing and just sort of going up, coming down? I mean, like... like how do you think that that looks? And is that something that's being considered? I mean, like, what, I, I don't even know how to ask this question because it's so far outside of my scope, but does that make sense? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is there's commercial astronauts these days and there's, I'd call them professional astronauts like we <laughs> there are. There you go. <laughs> I don't know if those are the proper terms, but uh, just make it simple. Let's keep it like that. Sure. Any interest in the space program is good for NASA overall, right? So more companies, I mean, there's a lot of startup companies now, not even startups anymore, but companies that have, you know, really goals of putting people in space and the more the better is the way I look at it. So it's not like, oh, they're they're taking away our astronauts. I mean, it's, a, it's totally different, right? It's a different mission. Um, now, some of the private astronauts have gone to the space station. Um, you may have heard the second mission went just a few months ago that took private astronauts up for about a week to 10 days on the space station. And then they came home. So short trip, but they, they were living and breathing the same place that uh, my colleagues did. The locker room. You know, yeah, <laughs> the locker room. So, does that make them do? I mean, they, and they trained, right? But they didn't train for those two years, you know, like we did. And uh, But they trained for several months, maybe in a year to, um, because of delays and things. And so they're getting a lot of training and becoming astronauts themselves just kind of in a different way. So I don't see that being a bad thing. Um, it's just kind of expanding the boundaries and the whole industry is, is getting better and better because of it, because of the competition, honestly. NASA thinks a lot differently now than we did before SpaceX came along, I'll tell you that. Um, so they've helped help NASA think out of the box a little more. NASA has helped SpaceX, like SpaceX, a great company. They just didn't have any experience with human spaceflight, right? So NASA really, um, and I kind of got to grow up with that whole process over the last five or six years with SpaceX. And so it was really neat to see them grow and learn and, and thus really work together to make it happen. Nice. Okay. I've got two speed round closers for you. Okay. Number one, you're in space. You've got these, you know, fancy workout machines on gyroscopes. What is one component of, we'll call it terrestrial fitness that you miss the most while you're in space? Or is there a component that you miss while you're in space? Yeah. The biggest component for me is just nature, right? Feeling the wind, <laughs> feeling even rain while you're running feeling a breeze, you know, <laughs> smelling, smelling dirt or smelling grass, just the, all those senses that you just don't have up there. Yeah. Stationary bike with your hands behind you in a space station that smells like a locker room. I can imagine it's <laughs> a beautiful experience. And then now that, I mean, now that those days are sort of behind you, what is your, what does your exercise routine look like now? Are you training for anything? Uh, I'm not training for anything. Uh, I run about four or five days a week two and a half to three and a half miles, you know, somewhere in there. Kind of hot these days in Houston. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're on the low end of that, just mainly because the limitations of my dog, not myself. But, uh, <laughs> I always love running with my dog. And then I'll work out in a gym 
Ideally, if I'm in town three days a week, if I'm on the road, then I just got to mix it in, in in a hotel room or so. But I try to do something every day. Maybe one day, you know, on a weekend or something, I'll take a day off to let my body recover if I really worked out hard or something. But generally, I try to do something every day. Nice. Well, I know we've, we've taken you up to the hour mark, and I wanted to say thank you for coming on. This has been, I mean, we could go a million different directions with just like <laughs> little boy astronaut curiosity questions, but we'll cut ourselves off. So thank you for coming on and talking to us. We appreciate it. This has been incredible. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. <laughs> Great meeting you guys. Look forward to seeing it. Yeah, thanks. Hey, Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter N, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in-depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.